Tonight we're in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. As we work down through the end of the chapter there, I want us just to get through verse 22 tonight. So let's read those verses. Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you are come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in, or to despise you the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and this time in it. And we ask for your blessing upon this time. May your Holy Spirit illuminate the word to us that we can hide it in our hearts and live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we want to always be careful that we take all of Scripture within the context of which it was written. And we know from the two weeks we gave ourselves in the first part of this chapter that Paul is addressing some answers to questions that of things that were going on in the church in Corinth there. And in this chapter and the next, and a little bit of the 13th chapter, he is giving them some things to do or not do in regards to their honor of one another in their gathering times. But should you take that, just just skip the context there. Skip what's going on in the church in Corinth. Skip that he said, you're called to be saints, but but you're full of problems. You're, You're full of the Spirit. You're full of doing spiritual things, but you're getting it wrong in a lot of ways too even though you may mean well and be well-intended. Let's just decide that we want to change something in the church and do it differently. So out of context, we just want to take one verse. And should you just take verse number 22, what might you conclude? What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in or to despise you, the church of God, to shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you this? I praise you not. What would your conclusion be that the church should never be doing together? Eating. Eating. Right? And, And we understand and we joke and make fun of our church of Christ. Brothers, (laughs) Brothers, <laughs> who this is the, some of their policy and some of them that it is not. And, and be sure they're making fun of you too. So don't feel too bad that I'm giving them a hard time. But in the context here, you could almost say that Paul is scorning them for this, but not that they're doing it, but how they're doing it. Now he's not writing to them specifically about potlucks. He's writing to them specifically about what? These verses, what's that? Okay, he does address them being drunkards and gluttons. I can't, I, I can't uh, argue that with you. But if you keep reading, and I didn't let you keep reading, what is he addressing? The Lord's Supper. The church practices two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Paul is writing to them here to address a concern with the Lord's Supper. So we need to take this to heart. He says already in the first 16 verses, this is what your, your family and your home should look like when you gather to worship for your sake and for the sake of those around you. And now he's getting into when you practice the Lord's table, this, this institution given by Christ to, to remind us that our hearts are tied together in Christian love as a family in God. Be careful. You're, you're, you're doing some things wrong. He says, I, I can't praise you. He started the chapter by saying, verse two, remember, he said, I praise you. Isn't that right? Verse two. 
Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances I've delivered to them. He said, you take the word and the teachings I've given you. Boy, you guys really, you remember it. He says, in this thing, I don't praise you. So he addressed here their mingling of love feasts and the Lord's Supper. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What you and I might now call fellowship meals. The early church called them feasts of charity. Jude 12 is our verse that will be a good proof text for that. Jude writes about some things going on, some some bad people in there. He says, these are spots in your feasts of charity. So he's not writing about the feast of charity. He's writing about these spots in the feast of charity. But his point or my point being in regards to what Jude says here, that it was common. It was just a, a given. It was a normal thing for them to have these love feasts, these fellowship dinners. Jude goes on to say, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Very, probably a very familiar verse to you as you hear me read it there. But I want you to hear that in this very familiar verse that you would take for granted the doctrine that is there. I also want you to take for granted the, the potluck dinner that is there. Mostly because I like fried chicken and pecan pie. No, <laughs> because I think God intended his church to be sharing in these things as well. And we don't need to neglect these things. In fact, I would say that even though we're a Baptist church in the South who proudly has an added dish dinner pretty often, like once a month, we're, we're getting to where now we're almost beating the once a month qualifier. So that's pretty good. We, you've helped me as a, a pastor go up in the, the standings here. So thank you for that. Um, but, but are we actually doing it in love? Are we actually doing it in a, a relational kind of way? Uh, uh, I, I think a a dinner should cause us to get to know each other better. I think one of the natural results of this group coming right here and pulling out the chairs and putting out the tables and tasting each other's dishes that we make should spur a conversation that leads to coffee or leads to a meal together outside of this group. Is that what's happening? So for sure we see the implications here of that being in the church. But, but Paul is giving instruction here that's not quite that positive. In fact, Verse 17, what does he say? I'm not praising you. Now in this I declare, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. You come together, not for the better, but for the worse. The Lord's table is intended to reflect the unity and the harmony of the body of Christ. It is to remind us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. More so in the Corinthian culture. Some of you are masters, some of you are servants. Some of you are this, some of you are that. Some of you are rich, some of you are poor, whatever. Whatever the the distinctives are that divide us on the outside. When we come together, the Lord's table reminds us that for all of us, Jesus gave his body in death and Jesus shed his blood for the remission of our sins. Praise the Lord for this memorial, this remembrance that we're to do for how long? How long will we take the table? Till he comes. So every time we take from the Lord's table, it's a reminder to us that Jesus is coming soon. He will return and we'll be face to face with Christ our Savior. It's a blessed thing. But for the Corinthians, it had become a mark of disunity and contention. If you were rich, you used this love feast that was followed by the Lord's table to show off your richness. You, you, you brought so much that you left there with your belly aching and your mind drunk 
because you had just had the best wine and the best meats and you had done the best things because you were rich and you could afford it. And if you're poor, you left there hungry and discouraged because you maybe just didn't have food to bring that day, but you still wanted to come be with the church and take the Lord's table. And Paul says, this is not how it should be. He's saying to the Corinthians, you should have been having an added dish meal instead of a bring your own and sit at your own place and just eat what you brought. I think the current church needs to take note here. An ordinance meant to bring strength and health to the church was instead bringing physical weakness and death. Look at verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. What's the cause? Verse 27, for whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Paul says, you guys are misusing the ordinance of the Lord's table. And for this cause, many are weak and even dying because of it. Chuck Swindoll said in his commentary on this passage, he said, the Corinthians had turned what God intended to be a celebration of charity and remembrance into a gluttonous orgy of pride and selfishness. Instead of leaving people improved, their gathering was leaving them divided and discouraged. And church, I would say to us tonight, before we really even dig into this passage, we need to be careful in in any practice, whether it's the ordinances or whether it's just some good idea we thought we should do. We need to be careful that we don't fall prey to similar practices. For sure, especially in regards to the ordinances, but let us assess all of our practice and be sure that they are for the edification of the body and that they are not actually tearing down the body. The, the word that we use as church is what word in the Greek? Ecclesia. Yeah, ecclesia. A good, wor- a, good, a good word for what that means is just in the basic term, in like Paul's day, it just meant the assembly. Assembly. Well, the opposite of that would be a Greek word, schismata. What does that mean? Give me a, some, some of you etymology people, give me a pretty close English word. Schism, which means a division, a faction. Paul uses both of those words here. Well, let's dig in. What were they doing? And while you're thinking, well, as we're going through this, for sure we'd want to be careful, but I think we are fairly careful. Maybe we're overly careful with the Lord's table. I think if Harpeth could adjust, we would do it. Like there's a lot of things you could add here, and I'm not suggesting we change how we take the Lord's table, but I'm just saying. I don't think there's some things we need to take away from. If anything, we would add to, right? Maybe we said, some, some would say, oh, we need to do it more. Or maybe it needs, somehow needs to be more intimate or it needs it to be at a different point in our service. Or what, what, right? that, we're not going to apply this passage to us to say, yeah, we've really been, you know, overdoing our love feast when we have the Lord's table. But probably we could apply this interpretation in a lot of different ways in our church. What if... What are, we, what are our practices that are not bringing unity, but that are causing division? So verse 18, we've covered verse 17. He says, I, I don't praise you. 
You're not coming together for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. So it was reported to Paul that there were these schisms, these factions in the church, divisions. And, and I want to be clear that these were not their planned discipleship groups. These were not them saying, all right, on this hour, we're going to have, like we just did, the parents over here studying, and the teens over here studying, the children over here studying, the nursery kids over here studying. And we do that on purpose, and I'm glad it was fun. We had a good time with that. This is not what he's talking about there. He says in verse 18, when you come together, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a polar opposite to what he is saying here. When you come together, this was a time for unity. But he says, when you come together, when you should be unified, when you should be ecclesia, I hear that there are schismata, divisions among you. And he says, and I love Paul's wording, and I partly believe it. If you heard that, can I pick on you, Aunt Redonna? Are you not feeling like it tonight? All right. If you heard that Aunt Redonna was in Walmart acting so crazy that they had to call security, you would not believe that, right? If we get everybody witness to this, you would not believe that. Amen, Aunt Redonna? Amen. No arrests in your record, nothing. But if you heard that Aunt Redonna was in Walmart at the very minute that the Braves won the World Series and she was acting so crazy they had to call security, we might partly, might partly believe it, all right? Now, this is Paul's tone here as he says in verse 18, and I partly believe it. Because as we've studied this letter, he said to this church, like, you guys, you're, you're so spiritual. You're so full of the fruit of the Spirit. Like, this shouldn't be going on here. And so as he writes to them, and he's saying, this is what's being reported to me. I'm like, as specific as I know how, what I, what I believe was happening here is they meant to be having like a, a fellowship meal, but everybody just brought their own stuff. And so you, you, you would have the Joneses over here having McDonald's, but then you'd have like the Smiths over here having Longhorn Steakhouse, right? It just, it wasn't equal. And then there were people who just like couldn't afford it, but they still wanted to come take the Lord's table. So they didn't bring anything. And it was just really an odd thing going on there. And so Paul says, you're, you're meant to come together, but when you're supposed to be coming together, the way that you're doing it is causing you to be split up. But he says, but I part, and I partly believe it. Now I want to make clear one other point in verse 18 before we move on. Richard Pratt points this out. I'm glad that he does in his commentary. He says, Paul's chief concern was that divisions perverted public worship. See, we can, we can take this and make it like a James 2 type thing and just say, yeah, that's right. We, we shouldn't be given uh, priority to the rich over the poor or vice versa. But it's not quite what Paul is addressing here. Paul is just saying here, this is causing a problem in your public worship. And he's going to give more instruction later. And he's already given some instruction about public worship. What he's already given is when you gather together, let none of you do something that keeps the other person from worshiping. So that's very important. We were talking in the parent class before we came in here about kids being in church with their shoes off. Our conclusion to that was not make sure the kids put their shoes on so you all are clear. Our conclusion to that was if there's a kid in your row with their shoes off and it's bugging you, 
Move seats. Amen. Probably a bad time to yell amen, Ben, but all right. He does live in Hickman County. <laughs> so I, we want people to be comfortable and worship comfortably. I'm not like, we're not going to put this on the website. Come with your shoes off. But when that's a thing, that's a thing. But in regard, outside of that, because you could sit somewhere else, you can decide where you're going to be. Like, right, we can be. But if someone's actually doing something that is preventing you to be worshipful, this is what Paul is talking about. Then he goes on to say, when we, the church, gather, we should also act in such a way that it wouldn't be very shocking to an unbeliever should they come in to the worship. No, this is not Paul's permission to be a seeker-sensitive church. He's pretty clear on what the elements of worship should be in all of his letters. Worldly things are, that never make the list. But he's saying, you Corinthians, you really get into some sort of charismatic type things. And he's kind of calming them down from that and says, you should, if you're going to do that, at least do it in private. And he says, and, and I would admonish you to stop doing it at all. In fact, I'd rather that you just be as, as passionate to be loving and show charity as you are to do this, this, and this. Which is a pretty awesome verse. If I can do all of these things and have not charity, what am I? Nothing. Sounding brass, yes. Tingling cymbal. So his chief concern is that these divisions were upsetting the perfect public worship. He's addressing the division in general, but his focus is, isn't so much on the house-to-house issue of it. He, he's not saying here, the Stricklands and the Randolphs just can't get along because Chance is always making fun of them for being from Hickman County. That's not what Paul's saying. That, that, that gets addressed in other parts of letters. But in this letter, he's saying, what you've all set out to do is a bad idea and it's upsetting the public gathering. There's a lack of fervency in gathered worship because of how you're going about this. Now that could be applied to us, could it not? Now this doesn't surprise Paul, as he says. Then in verse number 19, he goes on to say, For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now, for just a minute, don't think. (laughs) You rarely hear me tell you that during a sermon. But turn off your brain for just a minute, because that's a confusing verse, and you'll be thinking heavily about it. And how many have already went to your notes to see what MacArthur said? or Spurgeon, or whoever you got, Sproul. Hang on, just a minute. (laughs) I'll go there in a minute. I'll get you to these footnotes. Let me just give you the chance interpretation here. Paul says, this doesn't surprise me. Divisions are the natural result when Christians are carnally minded instead of discerning the mind of the Lord. Let's make that our basis. Because in this verse or any other verse in Scripture, I think that's a pretty true principle. Divisions are the natural result when Christians are carnally minded instead of discerning the mind of the Lord. Amen? Can we all agree to that? I'm going to take that as the premise of what Paul is saying here in verse 19. Now, now I'm going to get into some major interpretations of verse number 19 and why they're good and why they're bad. But first, I I want us just to hear this in the context of Harvard Baptist Church on January the 18th, 2023. As long as not yet glorified believers make up the assembly, we're going to find this to be the case. Perfect unity in any local body is absolutely impossible. 
Now, some of you who really like to cause division, you're like, whew, yeah, I'm off the hook. No, that's, that's not what I mean to say. But it's impossible that all parts carry the same level of maturity. Who in here tonight would say, I've been in the faith, active in the faith, for 30 years or more? How many of you? Raise them up so people can see. All right, put them down. Now, how many of you would say, I've been active in the faith, faith for 10 years or less? Okay. So just that one survey right there shows you a major division in our church. Those of you who said 30 years or more, do you remember back? Can you look back to how, I'm going to offend all the rest of you, but I'm just going to say it. How ignorant in the faith you were in those first 10 years? Do you remember? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's something, isn't it? It's a real thing. And, and I don't mean that to the offense of those of you who I just had raise your hand. I'm not calling you a bunch of ignoramuses. Ignorant just means you lack the knowledge. Yes, sir, Brother Homer? My 50th is coming up in February. Amen. That's great. So you could for sure testify to the fact that when your first 10 years of Christianity, there was a lot of this missing from your head and your knowledge and your, your willing, availability to live out. I do say that a person is, will have an appetite change toward the book. Yes. If a person gets saved but walks away from the book, they need to wonder, and I know what a false uh, profession he is. Yes. Amen. That's very true. So just given that one fact, despite the fact that some people root for Alabama and other people root for real football teams. <laughs> see, I got on the girls about their head coverings. Did y'all see what Ryan Rowland's daughter wore to church tonight? A Bama hat. She's got her head covered, though, so that's something, right? I mean, <laughs> Get you some duct tape. Put over that. So there's always going to be differences, but but in spiritual maturity, it's going to lead to divisions. It just is. We're anybody here glorified yet? We're just not. You're hopefully justified. If you've been justified, you're progressively being sanctified towards your glorification. But if you could raise your hand tonight to say you're glorified, that's one big proof that you are not. Because until Jesus returns, you're not going to be glorified until you're what? Dead. Which is one of the beauties of dying. Like It's not death to die for the believer. It's glorification to die for the believer. Praise the Lord. Now, just all of that to say, divisions are the natural result when Christians are carnally minded instead of discerning the mind of the Lord. So given our different levels of spiritual maturity and biblical knowledge, we've got to constantly be leaning hard into the Holy Spirit to be discerning the scriptures, the mind of the Lord, the feelings and emotions of the other Christians around us and doing our best to be repentant when we're wrong and forgiven when we're not. Amen. If you're not willing to give out forgiveness when you're the ones who's in the right, then you're not going to get the forgiveness when you're the one who's in the wrong. And when you're the one that's in the wrong, just, just own it and move on. We, we, we talked about this not too long ago, but there's bound to be someone come along and say, I believe the Lord has called me to X, called me to preach, called me to missions, called me to whatever. And they may come back to us later, and I hope they're able and comfortable to come back to us later and say, no, oh, we were wrong. I don't think that's what the Lord's called me to. And they should be just as comfortable in the church on that day 
as they, I grew up in a church where my pastor was very dynamic. A lot of young people came through there. A lot of young men, even, even adult men who would say, I think the Lord's called me to preach. Right, Edward? Lots of men. There's like 38 pastors right now who came out from under my pastor's ministry who are actively pastoring churches. He's just that kind of a personality. But there was probably 38 more who at one point or another said, I think I want to get into this preaching thing. It looks fun. These guys are having a great time doing it. And they would get up and they'd preach one time. And for many of them, it, it was such a shocking thing when they realized, like, I don't, this is not for me. They were kind of embarrassed and didn't want to be around the church anymore. It's okay. Yes, sir. I don't want to say this. Many, many people through their uh, public speaking skills, whatever it is, and with good Bible knowledge and doctrine can preach a great sermon. I think maybe I can. Amen. But not many can be a pastor. Sure. And I testify to that. There we go. And, and once a person comes to this realization, which comes through spiritual maturity, you grow in the faith, the church shouldn't treat them as, oh, they're wrong. They got it wrong. The church should treat it as, they got it right finally. Praise the Lord, they got it right. And we're growing together in the faith. So there has to be this kind of relationship. So for me, verse 19... Paul's saying, there must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. There's, you're going to get some things wrong, but in the end, the sovereign Lord is helping you learn what is wrong so that you can make it right. All right, now let me give you some other interpretations. Some would say that Paul is saying here, heresies, or even translating that word, which isn't always, the Greek word there is not, not typically translated in the English as heresy. It's actually usually divisions. But heresies which produce factions are necessary. That's how some would take this, this passage, what verse 19 means. That the things, the divisions, the things about us that produce these factions among us are actually necessary because this is how God reveals the true church. Very popular take in our day because church gatherings are often filled with believers and non-believers alike. The, I would say that the American church specifically is awfully bloated and a small percentage of those people are actually Christians, believers. They're actually in the faith, right? So I have a hard time with this view from Paul's day because I don't understand the early church to be bloated like the current American church is. I think the early church was smaller. I think the early church was persecuted. No, it was persecuted. I think these were actually more dedicated to each other believers. So to take this interpretation and to assume in our day that, that's, that God is causing division in the church just to call it down to the true believers, it's very problematic. Number one, it keeps the current church from having to address any poor practice in the current church that causes division because they can just assume that the division is a calling and not a result of a poor practice. And then you do end up with a smaller church, but that doesn't mean everybody in the church is saved. It just means everybody in the church who was a part of the toxicity stayed and everybody else left. So this is bad. to me, that's a bad interpretation of verse 19, that these divisions were on purpose because God was using this to purify his church. The other thing that this keeps the current church from having to address, besides just poor practices, is issues with regenerative church membership processes. Did you grow up in a situation or maybe you've been a part of as an adult where it was pretty common to just decide you were going to join that church and it was almost a blessing to them that you would and you walked the aisle and everybody celebrated that you'd finally decided to become a part of like the, like the club? 
It's pretty common in the South, at least in, in my day and age. What's the problem with that? There's been no proving. We love the verse in regards to like preachers or the church treasurer that says, lay hands suddenly on no man. <laughs> but why don't we apply that to people who join the local assembly? Now, I'm, I'm bad to be slow. I've publicly apologized to the Glover family. They've been becoming members of our church for over a year now. And, and, and they're members. They're in. We're going to Sunday. I'm meeting with them. We're officially getting this done. Sandy's going to get their information. And we're glad to have the Glover family. He's a part of our Baptist church. That is not the solution. That is just me getting busy with other things and neglecting these people. And I'm asked their forgiveness and they've forgiven me. I think. I hope. It could be. It's very possible. But at the same time, to be so concerned with growth numbers that we'll just take anybody and everybody and give them like membership in the church, what we're actually saying, now we think about it in, in human wisdom terms. Yeah, we don't want to give them a vote at our business meetings. Let all that go. What you're actually doing is you are condoning their lifestyle whether saved or not. You're saying, well, this group of people says they're just like us. That, them to hmm? them to That's exactly right. Deceive. Deceive. We, we must be very careful with this. So regenerative church membership, you've got to be born again and we need to believe it. It's a very important thing. If we took the interpretation here of verse number 19, that uh, God, you know, got to be a good spat down the church every now and then so God can keep the true believers and run the false believers off. Like, that's exactly what you don't have to address then is regenerative church membership. You can just say, God sent us some more people. And then you just always got these kind of waves of we grow for a while, we shrink for a while. We grow for a while, we shrink for a while. Relationships are made, then they're busted up. People like each other for a while, and now they don't like to see each other at Walmart. Is this what you read the early church was like? Not at all. They loved each other. They lived around each other. They ate together. They fellowshiped together. The world looked around and said, they're turning our world upside down. So I don't like this, this view. In fact, I think knowing that that, that is how that is read is good for us to be aware that this is probably wrong. Now, there is a biblical case to be made that God will cause persecution to spread the church. Can you think of one? There was this church in Jerusalem. And God wanted them to go where? Judea? Come on. Samaria? Where else? Everywhere. <laughs> so he did bust that bunch up to get them to go. And we're okay there. There's another case of there being sort of a, a, a goat among the sheep. Who is it? Judas. That's the one. So you, you, can, you can see where good, good Christians, good theologians, this is their take on verse 19. But you can see in the modern church how that take can be very, very bad to be practicing in that. The second popular interpretation here is that the divisions arise in the church are of God's sovereignty. Um, I think Paul could be submitting here to this point of view, like saying you Corinthians are doing a bad thing and I'm writing to address it. But nevertheless, we know that all things work together for God's good purposes. You, you could see that from verse 19. We're, we're accepting the outcome of this as his will. 
This happened in your church, but I'm going to write to address it. And God's going to use what's happened in your church to just kind of make you more fruitful and to kind of tie your hearts together better in Christian love. It's a it's a take, but it is a problematic take because sinful behavior is going on to ever address sinful behavior as it's a roundabout way for God's sovereignty to happen is, is never the best way to do it. But you can get a biblical example of it. Can anybody think of a biblical example of somebody committing a for sure sin, but it worked within the sovereign purposes of God? All right. What's another one? That wasn't the one I was thinking. That is a good one. Hmm? I don't know. What, what is it? Okay. Yeah. All right. I don't know if I'd call. I, I'm kind of with Moses there. I think I'd have killed that Egyptian too. No, I'm just kidding. All right. What's the story? Yeah. Another brother, she doesn't get an heir, so she tricks Judah into sleeping with her to produce an heir. Uh, obviously, you know, an immoral activity, something would be uh, against the Old Testament law. Yep. But the heir is in the line of Christ. Right. Did you have one, Brother Homer? Yeah, there is a scripture that says, and so God made it for Judah. Yeah. Joseph said this. His brothers did a very sinful thing. And he, he submitted to this. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Mine was Rahab the harlot. She had to hide those spies, meaning she had to lie. Lying is sin. The smallest child in here knows that. But like, God worked it for his purposes. So do we interpret verse 19 then to say, well, within God's sovereign purposes, it's okay that I lie, murder, commit fornication and adultery? No. We, we need to be very careful that that's not our take either. Yes, sir, brother, brother Homer, brother Lucky. Because God uses some of these things to bring about what He wants to happen by His sovereign, perfect engineering, does not mean that He condoned the sin. That's right. And condoned the way it happened. He used it in spite of us. But that don't mean that He blessed it or caused it or condoned it in any way. That's exactly right. Yes, sir. So, you think about it every in the Bible that is written down as a sinner, you know, just like that every one of us, God's so using us for his plan. Yes. That's the whole purpose of... And that goes back to the first two verses of, like, Today, Caleb may say, this is what I think God's will is for my life. Ten years from now, you may say to the church family, this is like either that's changed or I was wrong or whatever. And we must understand we're imperfect humans serving a perfect God. And we're going to get things wrong. Now, if we're willingly sinning to get things wrong, the church's position on, on that should be you're acting like an unbeliever. Until you repent, start acting like a believer again. We're not going to handle you like a believer. That goes back to regenerative church membership practices, Right? All right, verse 20. We've got to get finished here. What's that? All right, Ben told me to, so I will. (laughs) Verse 20, he says, What you're doing here is not the Lord's Supper. When you come together, therefore, in this one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. But they would have said, Yes, we are. We're quoting the verses. We're, we're, We're taking the bread. We're drinking the juice or the wine. But Paul's saying, No, you're coming together to do this. Now, this does give us a couple premises in the, in the church now. 
The Lord's Supper was a communal event. It was not a private meal eaten at home. You must be very careful with that. Now, an area that I think our church may be lacking in this regard, and Brother Scotty and I have recently had discussions about this, we have homebound members who never get to partake of the Lord's table with us. So I think that could be addressed. One way to address that is the elders typically just take it to them and serve them communion in their house. The negative of that is, is you're not taking it with us. It's later. Don't, I don't think that makes it wrong. What I was thinking was, is we have those little to-go packs is what we're using now. It'd be very easy for us to make sure they had a good supply of those so that when we took them at the church and they're watching on live stream, they could take them from the home. I don't know what the solution is, but I think that could be solved. But what I want to be careful that we don't misunderstand verse 20 to be teaching here is that it would be okay for you to serve communion when you have about six people over to your house because you're all Christians. I don't think that's the way to handle this. That got popular in the early, like, like in the 2010s, there was a book written and there was a, uh, you know, rock star preacher that was pushing this and people began to do this. I, I'm not scorning you if that was your practice. I think that people meant well in this but I think it should be what you and your local assembly do together. We should also note that it was a given for Paul here in the local church, number one, that they share meals together. He's not writing and talking about whether they should or shouldn't share meals. It just kind of was like, you do this like it was a normal circumstance for them. So it should be for us too. And then number two, that they regularly took communion together, which we should too, right? The celebration of the supper was a central element in the worship for early Christians. But Paul shocks the Corinthians by saying, you're not actually eating the Lord's Supper. They claim to be eating the Lord's Supper. They think they are eating the Lord's Supper. And they're most certainly, he's already said, using the words handed down, he taught them by Jesus Christ for the Supper. Still, it was not the Lord's Supper they were eating. And what's his reason? Because you're supposed to be ecclesia. Assembly, and instead you're a schism. It cannot be the Lord's Supper, according to Paul, if evil runs rampant during the meal. This is why, like when we partake, we would be a um, um, a church that would they would you would call what we do open communion, and then there's closed communion where you would only have communion when there was known church members gathered. So you wouldn't do it on a Sunday morning. You would do it at some other time. And then if guests came, you would instruct them to leave because you're having closed communion there. I struggle with that. I really, really struggle with that. I know why people do it, but I struggle with it because we're one body. So one of the blessed things about, there's all these different churches in the world now, and they're going to do things a lot different than we do. We're going to do things a lot different than a lot of them do. But the one thing that we should all be doing this the same is take, eat, this is my body given in death for you. Drink, this is my blood shed for the remission of your sins. Wherever any believer shows up on the face of the earth to worship together with other believers, that tie that binds our hearts in Christian love should be evident and practiced. Now in that regard, we give instruction prior to ours that says, but if you're gathered here today and you are living in known sin, repent before you partake or withhold from partaking. Because if evil runs rampant during the meal, then it's not the Lord's table. Brother Scotty and I knowingly 
serve the Lord's table to someone who's living in open sin, what we've actually done for every one of you is negated that taking of the Lord's table for you. It was useless. We might as well have not even served it. So ever you get mad at me and Brother Scotty because we just refused to serve the Lord's table to someone, was it Luther or Calvin that they towed it out of town on a rail? I think it was Calvin. He, refu- he said, I will not. And there were some, um, some local, they'd be like drug dealers in our day. There were some local men who were involved in vice and they kind of owned the church. <laughs> and they said, you will or we'll run you out of town on the rail. And he said, I will not. And they ran him out of town. You know, they got a pole and they put him on it and they, they took him out of town. Well, what did they have? They probably found him somebody else who would serve him the communion, but did they actually have the Lord's table? Nope. Paul said, this is not, you're not having the Lord's table. Verse 21, for in eating one taketh before other his own supper and one is hungry and another is drunk. And that's where I got the information from what was actually going on here. Some were eating and drinking in a sumptuous way. Others were neglected and hungry. Each brought their own and either didn't share or only shared within their own faction there. So the poor man starved or ate poorly, even at the church dinner, while the wealthy man ate well. Verse 22, he says, you might as well just stay at home. And I like how he asks them these rhetorical questions. What? That's a question you never want to have someone ask you, isn't it? You say something or you're doing something or addressing you and they just look at you and say, what? And this is what Paul says here. What? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? Well, sure we do, Paul. Do you despise the church of God? Well, no, we don't despise the church of God. We're reading your letter. Do you despise, or do you want to shame the poor? Oh, we're the church. Of course we don't want to shame the poor. But what do I need to say to you? Should I praise you in this? He says, no, not by any means. I'm not going to praise you in this. The the Lord's table is to be a symbolic measure of the tie that binds our hearts in Christian loves. We always sing, blessed be the tie that binds after after the Lord's table. It's perfect for this. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear. Well, if, (laughs) if some of you are acting over here in this way and these are not welcome to be a part of that or vice versa, it's going to be kind of hard to sing that song after you take the Lord's table, isn't it? Our hopes, our fears, our aims are one. Our comforts and our care. But no, you can't have any of my mashed potatoes. You see Paul's point here. He says, your meeting is if, blessed be the tie that binds, don't eat them. <laughs> you obviously don't have your hearts bound together in Christian love. And the complete opposite. Based on the current activity of the Corinthian church, Paul says, you want me to praise you? Well, I just can't do it. So this is Paul's teaching. We'll stop there. We'll pick up next time in verse 23 where he actually gives what we use as the instruction for the Lord's table and then finish out the chapter.